Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Podcast for another week, proudly sponsored by Subway. Get your mid-match feast delivered fresh, Subway eat fresh. I'm Matt Walsh, Christian Jolly is here again. Jake Michaels is taking the bye weeks off, which must be very nice, Jared Barker, because you've uh, stepped into the hot seat, or the cold seat, because we're very cold here in the studios in Disney for the first time in two years. It is a bit uh, a bit cold in here, but it's good to be in here, nice and luxurious. First time in, uh, as you said, a couple of years that we're... In the studios, poor Jake isn't here to see it, but uh, that's poor his Jake. fault for uh, taking some time off. So, uh, no, always a fun time of the week. Uh, and, yeah, plenty of talking points coming out of the uh, round of footy. I don't know where Jake is. I think he's sitting by a pool in Cairns or he's you know, somewhere halfway around the world gallivanting. We don't really know. Christian, first time we've been in the office, and I, I calculated this, since March 2020. Could you believe it? Yeah, it feels like it's been a while uh, staring at your face on Zoom. So, yeah, good to be in person. <laughs> it is good to be back in person. Uh We've got a lot to get through, obviously the bye weeks, but it was a pretty decent slate of games, Jazzy. We had a chat uh, before the coming in to record the podcast that, yep, six games, a bit fewer, but the actual quality was, for the most part, pretty good. No, it didn't sort of uh, slack at all. I thought the quality of football, as you said, started with Friday night. Like The game on Friday night, Cats and Doggies, was uh, a bit of a funny game when you when you look at it. I know Christian might, might have some numbers on that game, but Pies, Hawks, uh, Lions, and Dockers on the Sunday. So it started with a bang and ended with a bang. Yeah, hidden on the Sunday twilight, that uh, that fixture between the Dockers and the Lions, which is a bit strange. Hey, before we get into the main body of the podcast, something you noticed from round 12, Jared? Uh, apologies to whoever posted this on Twitter, because I can't give you any credit, <laughs> but uh, it did pique my attention. So I'm just I'm going to go towards the sandful here and look at the Woodville West Torrens game against South Adelaide Panthers. sorry, uh, 4-4-28 and 3-9-27 were the final scores for those Thriller. teams, but... The big takeaway is the total tackles that were counted in the game were 337, which is just astronomical. Tackles. tackles. I think you, you get pretty excited when your team gets about sort of 60 to 80 tackles. You've had a pretty pretty ferocious, that's, uh, contested kind of outing. That's normally the line that you want to strive for. But no, Woodville, 139. South Adelaide, 198 tackles for the game so clearly the weather played a part in this absolutely torrential and heavy conditions no doubt uh but another part to this 198 tackles for south Adelaide. unfortunately they couldn't break the 200 mark they had 184 kicks for the game so they had more tackles than kicks throughout the entire contest uh just to highlight one uh, player's performance too dylan clark a bit of a shout out 19 tackles was the most for the game and 12 <laughs> players had more than 10 tackles in that game so haven't seen the vision of it but i'd love to see it you'd love to get in the ice bath after that and just uh take a few moments to yourself and and chill out because uh obviously a very physical physical game you wouldn't know who's who as well when you get all muddy and you can't see anyone's <laughs> numbers <laughs> they'll probably just tackle on everyone that yeah, was a good pickup but yeah we will cross it in the offices as well obviously we do all the sample vfl waffle uh, things like that. So it's the second most tackles we've ever recorded in a game. Um, second, so that wasn't even the most. Yeah, shout That's... out to uh, two Neefel clubs that obviously I think running around in the local Sydney leagues now. Redland versus Sydney Uni back in 2016 had 375 Jesus. tackles combined. Um, and, you know, both games, again, would have been double-checked and corrected, but Redland, Redland Sydney Uni would have been done off vision as well, so it would have been even more specific and to the point almost um but yeah the eagle south adelaide game i know there's 337 tackles in the senior game 316 in the reserves games as well so keep a mind keep an eye uh you know uh keep our caller in mind who had to sort of go through and identify 700 or so tackles for the day and as he said i think he's probably called more tackles than he has kicks yeah that's a good game. point that's... actually so you uh, the caller would have been there and 
obviously you're probably used to saying, you know, kick short number 17 for whoever. Uh, you Tackle, tackle, tackle. Yeah, it can get quite boring as a call and a keyboard. Just, yeah, call so how, do, how do you call that tackle during a game? How is that actual call, Well, it depends. Mate? So a tackle uh, before possession. So if you tackle someone that's trying to take possession of the ball, we'll just call a tackle for number eight. Again, that's right. We sort of call at those level. We call number and uh, team name. So it might have been Eagles eight tackle. Uh, on a disposal, it's just, yeah, it's it's the kick or the handball first, followed by the tackle uh, player. So, um, you know, it might have been Eagles 35 kick um, and it tackled by Eagles 7. Um, yeah. And that also, you know, extends to dispossessing a player of the ball and things like that. But, yeah, three sort of stages of tackles. It's before the guy gets possession. When he's in possession, you dispossess him or he gets his kick away and, and the tackle follows that. That caller definitely had their work cut out for them. I find that extraordinary. <laughs> uh, Christian, something you noticed from round 12. Yeah, I probably noticed it coming into round 12. Um, but it, yeah, it held true. We talk about uh, teams having wood, having the wood over the other team. Um, Melbourne-Sydney. So if you go back to 2012, Melbourne's only won two out of the past 12 against Sydney. Or on the flip side, Sydney's won 10 out of, out of the 12 against Melbourne. And extend that back to 2006 and it's uh, 16 out of 20 for Sydney. Uh, with just four wins for Melbourne's in that time. So again, we... Spoke about it being a big upset. Melbourne sort of, I know they've lost two in a row now, and we'll sort of go into a bit of a deep dive about them in a second. But yeah, Sydney or John Longmire really do have the wood over Melbourne and just have them figured out. Well, maybe it's not as disastrous for D's fans as we first thought then, Jazzy. No, no, but it still is quite disastrous, isn't <laughs> we'll it, when you're, <laughs> you're losing two games in a row and you're the uh, the premiership favourites. But do, do you put that down to, sorry, Christian, do you put that down to game styles and uh, well, the coaching, or I, is it... Again, the one constant, if you go back to 2012 and even a bit earlier than that, it's John Longmire's been there the whole time. I looked at it. They've beat them at the SCG. They beat them at the MCG. They beat them in Cairns. Um, So they've done it at different venues. They've done it when Melbourne's been poor and when Melbourne's been good. So I I do. I put a lot of credit on that to John Longmire and probably knowing that, you know, he's got a a style or, you know, a theory of how to beat Melbourne. And it's held true for, you know, quite a while now. There we go. Hopefully, uh, for if you're a Melbourne fan out there, you don't come across the Swans in finals because that could uh, could throw no. another spanner in the works. Uh, there's something that I noticed was from the same game, and I don't like to bash commentators often. Uh, Jake maybe likes to get into them every now and then, but Ben Reid has not played a game for near on three years. Last played in round 12, 2020. He for, returned on the weekend, though. He did. <laughs> if you're if you're watching the Channel Seven coverage of uh, of uh, the game between the Swans and the the Demons, you might well have thought he'd come back and put a Swans uniform on. Uh, Sam Reid had one of his best games of his career. He had ten tackles, five inside fifty, kicked three goals, and was one of Sydney's better ones. Uh, were better players on the day, but one of the one of the broadcasters, one of the commentators, uh, just couldn't quite figure out the difference between the two brothers. And unfortunately, uh, Sam was called as Ben about four or five times, which was extremely noticeable, uh, and people were not happy on Twitter. It's probably acceptable when the brothers are playing at the same time or in the same game, like the McCartans, perhaps. Like the McCartans. Just say McCartan, and you're fine. Yeah. Uh, Less room for error that way. But, uh, yeah, considering it's still happening when Ben hasn't played a game in a couple of years. <laughs> and oh, I just don't know. I don't know how you can make that mistake. But so often. I'm sure yeah. someone in the back, on the back row is tapping, tapping on, the on the shoulder, shoulder. and saying, yep. you know, excuse me, just just like to let you know. Uh, anyway, I thought that was strange. Um, people on, on Twitter found it, oh, I was going to say funny, but they probably didn't find it as funny as, as what it could have been. But, uh, yeah, nonetheless, Sam Reid had a great game. Is there another couple in the AFL that get mixed up as much as they did? Because they did while Ben was playing. They got mixed up a fair bit, Sam and, Sam and Ben. Well, there Is there another Sam set Reed of brothers? Sam Reid played for the Giants. 
Yes. Uh, so maybe their careers got mixed up when you say, oh, he's a known goal yeah. kicker when he might not be or something like that. Getting but... the stats for Sam Reid, but it's the wrong Sam Reid, Christian. <laughs> well, well uh, something I've noticed also during the week, the Durdens. The Durdens uh, yes, at Carlton have sort of, I uh, think, taken something that was said earlier in the season uh, by one of the commentators of... Um, trying to work out if Corey Durden was the same player when he was at North and yeah. realising, well, no, it's a different Durden and they've come out and done a video together. He grew, so. he grew a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the other way around. That's happened. Corey, uh, yeah, it looks like he shrunk. Uh, let's get into things. Uh, the agenda for the week. We talked about Melbourne off the top. Uh, they now lost two, on, uh, two in a row, two on the bounce, Jazzy, um, and they're not looking too flash as they were a few weeks ago when they almost looked unbeatable and, and they were the runaway premiership favourite. Um, two losses, one at home, sorry, both at home, uh, to Fremantle and now to Sydney. What do we put this down to? Is it, as I said off the top, is it a little bit of complacency? Is it a little bit of they haven't really been tested by some teams until now? Is it a little bit of, you know, a bit of everything, a bit of, you know, poor weather, um, good teams coming up against them? I have a feeling it's a bit like what Mick Malthouse used to say back in the day about Collingwood, where every team gets up to play them. Every game's a blockbuster. Every game that the pressure's at its highest. Not that you wouldn't go into a game not wanting to put pressure on, but it seems like, teams are setting themselves for the D's and they haven't been able to respond in, in the last couple of weeks. I believe that there is an element of that, no doubt. But correct me if I'm wrong, I think the two most previous games or prior games to the Fremantle and Sydney losses were against North Melbourne and West Coast, which probably aren't the tune-ups that you want coming into these big clashes. Uh, you talk about complacency. Um, you know, th- these guys are the premiership favourites, so it's hard for them to maintain a certain level. How, how often is it that a team goes through a season undefeated? So... Uh, if they're going to go through a form slump, it's probably a good time that they do it right now as opposed to in finals time because they have been exposed and now they've got a second half of the year to work on these maybe little issues that Simon Goodwin has mm. has now found out. So, yeah, look, I think I can put it down to a couple of things. It's Stephen May and how reliant they are to command that defensive 50 and how unstable they looked in both games against Fremantle and Sydney. Uh, when he, one, exited the field, and two, didn't play at all. Mm. It's so, funny, and then when Harrison Petty went off for a bit of time on, on Saturday night as well, yes. they sort of struggled to maintain that, that structure in the back half. and They, they were exposed. A bit vulnerable. They were we've exposed. Talked, and we've talked about the D's defence as being one of their strongest out uh, strongest units, as well as that midfield. Max Gorn kicks three goals, has one of the, the better games that he has. We know we're, we're going to get out of Clayton Oliver. Christian Petrarca might have had a down couple of weeks. Christian, what can you put it down to that Melbourne haven't done in the last two weeks that they've been doing over the last you know 17 before that yeah it is. sort of go back to the start with melbourne and you, you nailed it about defensively we know that defensively and i think i've banged on about this for about two years they've, they've been the hardest team to score against once inside 50 ever so they're just so so miserly once it gets down there but looking at all their other numbers clearances contested possessions before their two losses they weren't dominating in any area of the game they weren't clearly number one for in any of those for inside 50 differential time in forward half they weren't sort of top of the ladder so they were and similar to Richmond in previous years when they were on top of the ladder, they sort of gave you a chance. They sort of didn't sort of play and dominate games for four quarters. They probably didn't have, you know, a huge winning margin either. So, But looking at the score per inside 50 is the first thing you look at. For them going forward, they were 44% um, in their 10 wins on, on the trot, which was only ninth. So they were outside the top eight for scoring per inside 50. That's dropped to 36% and 17th the last two weeks. So... That's really dropped away 8%. So teams are sort of, you know, being able to figure out how to sort of man their man their forward 50 and sort of stop them from scoring. You can see that as well. It's visible how often they were blazing away and kicking it long inside 50. But then you've got Ben Brown, who's not really... Uh, well, he has, he's not having the impact that 
we know that he he's can a lead and mark player. He, he's not a you put it on top of his head in the goal square with five others and he'll you know Max King style pluck it out of the pluck it out of the air. Correct. So as if Max Gorn's not down there and doing that standing tall, sticking the arms up and just clunking them, then they're in trouble. But you saw it against Sydney. How many times did Tom McCartan and Paddy McCartan just stand there and intercept the footy? Yeah, and just found it too easy. And then, again, at the other end for Melbourne, where they've been so good, 37%, uh, you know, they conceded a score from 37% of opposition entries across the first 10 rounds. That's risen to 45% um, in the last two weeks, which gone from 1st to 14th in that stat. So that's that's where Stephen May, mm-hmm. and, you know, we talked about Petty going off injured for a little bit on the weekend as well. That's their loss down there. But it's almost, yeah, when you lose a bit from your front half and you lose a lot from your back half, it's always going to hurt you in two weeks. But... I go back to what Jared said before. It's it's a good time to have a loss. And you look at last year, they won nine in a row. I think they came out and lost two um, in a row after their first nine and then went four and four for the rest of the season. So to Adelaide, no, no less. You know, yeah. a team that probably wasn't expected to beat them, even though I think that was at Adelaide Oval. And Collingwood who finished second last. Correct. Yeah, so again, beaten by two very, very good teams this year. And again, just it's not time to hit the panic stations yet. As I said, there's a few numbers there that show... Especially, and another one was scoring from turnover. I mean, they scored five behinds from turnover against Sydney, which is just unheard of. For if West Coast or North had scored that, you know, we'd be right on top of them about how bad their football was. It's just they just could not score from turnover on the night. Which is one of the hallmarks that you keep coming back to when it comes to Premiership Premiership footy, yeah, yeah, and sort of having to rank top six. So again, for Melbourne, they were they were scoring from turnovers twenty one percent of the time. The first ten rounds, fifth. So again, not dominant, but in that nice in the in the top six where you need to be. 17th the last two weeks for being able to convert a turnover into a score or intercept possession into a score. So really dropped away there. And then again, looking at the other way, they're the second hardest team to score against when you turn it over against them, against Frio and Sydney. Or the last two weeks, they've been 15th for sort of protecting their own turnovers. So it has been a sort of a a complete breakdown across the game, across the whole ground. But again, you'd back in Goodwin and the team to sort of be able to fix that before finals come around. Is this a mid-season lull and aberration or are they becoming that predictable that teams have actually now found out, regardless of it being Fremantle and Sydney, teams have found out how they play and what they need to do to stop the Melbourne run? Yeah, I think that... To me, it's probably too early to answer that question, but it is. It's it's one of the two, and you're right. That's that's what the wait and see is over the next two or three weeks. Can Mm. Melbourne sort of pull it back together and pull it back on their terms? Or are they going to have to try to find a new style because this one has been figured out? Well, we said that they did lose to the Pies last season. They've got uh, the Pies this week, Queen's birthday. Where do you see... I mean, Pies are running hot on form, Jared. We've seen they've beaten the Blues. Uh, they beat the Hawks on the weekend. They've had a, a big win over Fremantle in the West as well in recent weeks. So they're, they're humming along really well. Do you see this as a danger game for the Ds as well? Oh, no doubt it's a danger game. I still expect, and most people probably will expect, Melbourne to win this game of footy. Uh, but you probably can't sleep on Collingwood anymore. Um, and they play a really attacking brand of footy. They take on the corridor a lot more than they did under Buckley, which is one major difference between 2021 and 2022. It's this all-out attack that they play that means they're sort of never out of games. You've sort of heard Craig McRae say it this season as well. Uh, if you're six or seven goals down at three-quarter time, they're going to try and kick six or seven goals or eight goals in the last quarter to win the game. Mm. Um and that's the game plan that's changed, uh, and it's it's working wonders for them. I mean, they're seven and five after after twelve rounds, uh, and playing in a, re- a really attractive brand of footy. They they probably still lack in the defensive end, uh, so it's probably a good opportunity for Melbourne's forwards to run uh, into some form. Correct. Yeah. I mean, Collingwood have been giving up some big goals to big name po- big name and big forwards in the past few weeks. Mitch Lewis kicked four. I think Kerno kicked a handful. 
Tom Lynch, we know he kicked six against the Pies as well. So they're giving up a lot of goals to key forwards. This could be the game that gets Melbourne back into form, potentially. Mm, yeah, well, well that'll be interesting to watch. Uh, speaking of the Pies, they, their clash, well, we said it off the top, pretty interesting weekend of footy. Actually, a really good week of footy, I think, to watch as a neutral for the most part. Uh, you're a Collingwood man, though. You were. Did you watch pretty closely the, the game between the Pies and the Hawks? I did. What did you think of the umpiring? Um... I yeah, well, if you read our roundtable column, ESPN.com.au forward slash AFL, get onto last week's piece because I did back up the umpires. Um, I don't like it when people slag off on them or blame them for for losses. I just don't think they have that sort of impact on the game. They maybe control the complexion and construction of the game of footy, but they never determine a result. Um, so did they get some calls wrong? Probably, yeah, but they're human and they're going to make mistakes. So. Um, a couple that I will will mention. So we'll talk about Jack Inovan and a couple that he probably didn't receive in the last quarter and, and these head-high free kicks that, that everyone's been talking about. What are your thoughts, Walsh, on the arm raise, the arm lift that, that these niggly little forwards do? I mean, do you think they should be free kicks or should they not be free kicks? Look, we, we had this discussion a few weeks ago on the podcast about um, how if you're a small forward, you tend to be that kind of uh, niggly on the edge, you've got to have a bit of swagger about you, Tom Papley, Cody Waitman, Jack Ginnivan sort of style player. These are these kind of guys who, when they're at their best, they are um, they're mercurial at times, but they're a pain in the butt, really, to have to have around. And look, for someone like Waitman has accentuated contact and he's spoken about the way that he goes about games and, and he hasn't received a lot of free kicks in recent weeks. Um, since he sort of spoke and sort of said that that's part of his game, umpires have obviously looked at him and thought, well, um, we're not going to do that. We saw Jack Inman on the weekend. I think also that conditions like what we saw on Sunday don't help umpires. I think it's very hard to umpire a game when it's a perfect, you know, under the roof of Marvel Stadium. It's even harder when it's pouring down, players are sliding all over the place, arms are slipping up shoulders, all this sort of stuff. Um, he should have been paid a few more free kicks yeah. than what he was given. I've, I've always maintained that and, I, and I'll say it now, I, I hate it when players, when a player's first instinct when they gain possession of a footy is to shrug the shoulder up, lift up the arm, and then initiate high contact. It's up to the umpire to, to recognise whether... If that's if that's a player's first instinct when they get the footy, that means they had time to dispose of it or dish it off to a teammate, have a shot at goal. Yes. So I don't like it when a player elects to do that as opposed to disposing of the footy. Yeah. Um, I don't like the look of it and I never will like the look of it but in saying that I still think head high contact is head high contact yeah. which is what is difficult for the umpires to adjudicate did a player have prior opportunity by shrugging into the tackle or do you say well he's been taken high that's high regardless of how it happens I think you got to live if you're going to live by the sword you've got to die by it sometimes as well and there are going to be times and interpretations and you don't. I don't think you can look at a game as a whole I think you've got to look at every decision sort of individually and, and, and determine what the makeup of the game is, uh, what the makeup of the decision is at that point in time. Uh, and sometimes you're going to get them roll your way and sometimes you're not. I think, you know, if you were to look at next week, given there's been a lot of interest in these kind of decisions that were paid, he'll probably get more than he'll, he won't get. Do you believe in the boy who cried wolf? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. We've seen that from, from Waitman. He See, has not been given free kicks. In I think that's a dangerous game to play. If, if an umpire is going into a, a game of footy with a predetermined idea. But I don't idea. think it's predetermined. I think it just sits at the back of the mind a bit. 
and it's just like oh it's did instinctive he really get you, taken you see the blonde him? hair you know that it's Whiteman or it's Skinner and you, you think twice about paying the free kick it's a dangerous game to play but it also could just be it was in the last quarter put the whistle away and that's all it was yeah well we'll see uh, out of zone umps as well just before we move on from the umpiring stuff bit yeah. of a controversial couple of decisions paid by umpires from about sort of 50-60 metres away yeah. do you track whether the out of zone umpire pays a free kick Christian? no and it, hurt, and it hurts me to say no we don't because I, I noticed this probably three or four weeks ago yep. um in terms of certain umpires being overruled or certain umpires doing the overruling. Like, I feel like Matt Stevick, who's one of the most uh, experienced ones, if he does a game, it's probably two or three where he comes out of zone. And again, we notice it because we're sort of got to call the umpire for every free kick. So sometimes when you realise players are turning their heads or looking to the, you know, not to the umpire on screen, um, is is happening a lot more this season. But it does, it, it sort of hurts me inside that we, we don't track who the in-zone umpire is. So we don't have any proof that it's happening more. Yeah. But I am noticing it happening more. I'm happy for it to happen. But again, on the weekend, there seemed to be three or four times where the outer zone umpire got it wrong. And I feel like if you're going to jump in from 50, 60 metres away, you have complete right away. And once you jump in, and again, I got asked this question, whether if an outer zone umpire pays a free kick and an in-zone umpire sort of calls play on, who gets right away? Well, the free I said, kick gets well, paid. I, yeah, I think the outer zone umpire always gets right away. You, you shut up unless you need to jump in. So should that a, ma- should that be maintained? Should that still be the case? I think so, and that's why. What would you do? Ball it up, and in? that's why the the coaching has to be more about don't jump in. If you're if you're an outer zone umpire, you need to be 105 percent correct. The umpires is, are know, mic'd up right between each other. They are. Why can't Why can't one say uh, I was blindsided? You know, um, or if, if your contest is coming up and approaching, you just say blindsided, and then the outer zone umpire goes, "Oh, I've got a decent view of this." But in the instance of the so the Darcy Moore instance, that's that's sliding, yeah. uh, taking out the legs, which clearly isn't a free kick, and we have the beauty of hindsight, obviously. Yes. But in that case, it was the out of zone umpire who didn't have a, the better angle of the incident, mm. who still he paid was the directly free kick. behind yeah. the players. Yeah. He'd swallow the whistle in that case. And like I said, I think con- conditions like we saw on Sunday are always more difficult to umpire than. Uh, conditions that are you know a perfect sunny day at, at the MCG. Maybe so. you just give them zones. Stick into the defensive fifty. You go to the forward fifty. You take the center square, and anything that happens in those parts of the field, you adjudicate. Friend of the pod, uh, Matthew Head, who's a, a former AFL umpire. He, we've uh, uh, been I've been sort of chatting to him on Twitter a bit. He said that a fourth umpire would probably help as well. One that can sort of scoot around um, the backside of contests where three are kind of you know where, where there's three. They're, they're sort of told where to go. But if there's a fourth that can kind of roam around the packs, it might be a bit easier. I've always maintained that boundary umpires should be able to pay throws or, or ones that are so obvious. Like that, linesmen in the soccer calling fouls? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. You know, wave the flag or, or whatever it might be. So uh, anyway, we'll move on from umpires. I, I hate talking about umpires too much on this pod. No, they done do a, good a little job. bit <laughs> over the last few they weeks. They do a good job. And just to make it clear again, they do not... Uh, dictate the result of a footy game. The end result of a footy game will always work out for Just itself. like champion data does not dictate your multis, Christian. <laughs> uh, the Dockers, uh, they're flying. Uh, they're, they're looking very good and, and some big wins in recent weeks after a down patch. Um, Jazzy, we were talking about how you know they probably needed to reassess after a couple of bad losses, uh, one to Collingwood and one to the Suns, where they, they just didn't score. And this has been the concern that we've had for... We have had it for Melbourne, but we've also had it for Frio about where their scores are going to come from consistently. Uh, they beat one of the more attacking sides on the weekend in Brisbane. Brisbane have their own struggles, and we'll probably get to them a little bit later, but there's this big figure on the horizon, and it's Nat Fife who's set to return, played in the waffle on the weekend. Uh, what what's the best way to go about injecting Nat Fife? Is it because their forward line maybe has the more question marks on it? And we talked about their defence and their ability to um, create space from the back half. 
um, you know, hit hit the 45, uh, rebound with a plum, all this sort of stuff. Isn't that five suited maybe to a, a center half forward or a full forward kind of role? You almost forget that they're doing this without Nat fight at times. <laughs> it's it's quite amazing how they are uh, well on this run of form, and it probably says a lot about Fremantle the way that they've responded from those two losses to Gold Coast and Collingwood probably says a lot more about them than those individual games did. In terms of injecting that five, I don't know. What do you do? I mean, he's played forward in the past, so we know he's we a know good he can contest a grab. His kicking's probably a bit suspect. A great athletic ability. He's got a high reach, so probably plays taller than he is. I think he's 191 centimetres. Um, and he's obviously started his career as a half forward. The only problem is he kicked six goals 21 last year. So do you want that sort of inaccuracy in your forward line? In a forward line, that's absolutely humming at the moment. I think they've got a great dynamic mix of smalls and talls. Rory Lobb is in outstanding form. Yep. We've seen in the last two weeks Griffin Logue be swung forward as well. He's He'll compete seven days a week and twice on Sundays. We know that. He's got really good speed um, and providing a contest for them up there, which probably allows Lobb to do his thing as well. And then you've got the Mosquito Fleets, Wachowski and Schultz and Walters and Fredericks been outstanding. So do you want to mix up that forward group and interrupt it by injecting Nat Fife into the maybe you just stick him in a goal square or do you put him in the midfield and see how he goes which then might interrupt the form of maybe a Will Brody who's having an outstanding season Sarong and, and Brayshaw Christian uh, you, when you look at the Dockers where's a natural fit that you can see for him given where they're playing statistically again it is it's hard because they, they're going so well but I do know in the past they they sort of were trying to move away from him being too the much of a permanent forward as well. They, yeah. did, they didn't want to play him sort of 60-44. They wanted to get him back into the midfield when he was fit. So I think midfield is the, is the spot you have to find a role. Whether he rests forward and things like that, you know, is is another point. But I think when you're trying to introduce him in the team, he's got to take a midfielder spot. So again, looking at the names of midfielders, you, you're right. There's there's none that sort of stand out. David Mundy, you know, you're not, you know, 300 of games. He's been good. But again, like... <laughs> Well, Bailey Banfield might have been the obvious choice. Uh, he's sort of been on the fringes at Fremantle, but he's kicked four on the weekend, so but again, probably Ban- can't drop him. Yeah, Bailey Banfield's your half-forward flanker, so you, even if you take, even if you're dropping him for Nat Fife, you still got to find a spot in the midfield for Nat Fife. So you have got to move someone from the midfield to forward. So again, I'm not touching Brayshaw. I'm not touching Sarong at the moment. I'm not touching Brody. Yeah, as I said, <laughs> lucky Jake's not here because I've just mentioned David Mundy's name. But yeah, Darcy Tucker only had eight touches on the weekend, but again, more of a wing and a half-back player. So again, you can only get better with Nat Fife in your team. Surely, exactly. I'm, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> denying that, and I'm not even questioning that. Of course, you want Nat Fife. And again, just a simple number on the weekend. They lost contested possessions by three yeah. against Brisbane. Imagine you get an extra fifteen contested possessions there. You win that count by twelve and gets you an extra two goals. And it's you know you're a bit more comfortable comfortable in your margin. They around the ground they won the clearances by twelve. Uh, in in the middle at the centre square they lost them by one. So maybe there's a spot there for him, you know, in the in the midfield when that's the centre bounce and then he pushes forward or they find a role for him to do, you know, some whatever it might be. Uh, I think you're right. You look at a two time Brownlow medalist. Uh, he, he's fitting in that team whether we like it or not. And and the, the uh, doesn't matter if if Frio are winning and winning well. I think you've got to find a spot for him and and that's going to happen. Uh, as for the Lions on the flip side, uh, the last three weeks have been pretty leaky. Um, we know that they're an offensive juggernaut. They like to score heavily, but if you can't stop other teams from scoring heavily as well, then you're going to be in a bit of strife. And they've got a tough run home. Uh, they're in a good spot in the top four at the moment. They've banked some wins. Uh, is there a cause for concern after what we saw on Sunday? 
Yeah, well, last three weeks, you're right. So starting from the Hawthorne game, they went down to Tassie, bit of a shootout. They scored 112, Hawthorne scored 117 and got over the line. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the last three weeks, only one team's been easier to score a goal against once inside 50, and that's West Coast. And West Coast are at historic lows across a lot of their numbers. So that's the one number for Brisbane at the moment. It hasn't just, we've sort of slipped out of the top eight in terms of defending the back 50. They've become the second worst team at it. So definitely something to worry about. I mean, it, it was one of their strengths for the first nine weeks or so. So it is a, it's it's a quick drop-off and a big drop-off. But as I said, 117 points to Hawthorne, 96 to GWS, and 99 to Fremantle on the weekend. So definitely getting easier to score against. Um, yeah, it'll be something that they definitely look at during these buy rounds and getting that defence back on track. You said that during the early parts of the year that the defence was actually holding up quite well. I mean, with some of the names in there, Harris Andrews, Daniel Rich, Brandon Stasevich, Marcus Adams, they're quality defenders, Jared. So it's not like they've just dropped off all of a sudden and, and they're going to be no good for the rest of the season. This It's just a momentous sort of lapse, kind of like what we might have seen with Melbourne. Correct, but they still have this weird obsession with wanting a shootout during games. <laughs> Maybe that's what's actually brought them undone during finals in the past couple of years. Mm. Um, as Christian said, all these scores, these heavy scores that they're conceding, even when they're winning games, um, wins against the Swans, Suns and Pies, they still conceded 89, 80 and 91 points. Uh, before their most recent winning streak. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure it's it's going to steer them very well later in the season, unfortunately, for Lions fans. And you find, I think, as well, as the year progresses and the weather turns and winter comes along, um, it's not as easy to have, you know, big shootouts with accurate scores and, and this sort of stuff, Christian. I mean, you've done some looking at the numbers of, of scores in winter and, and accuracy and some stuff like that. And you found that that's probably the case when it hits a certain point, it's a bit harder to play your brand of footy. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, they'll, you know, every second week they'll, they'll get to go back to Brisbane and probably get the good weather, but it, it, it's exactly that. It's every other week that they come down to Melbourne or to Adelaide or, uh, you know, they were in Tassie a few weeks ago. I know they had good weather and that's where the shootout was, but you're right. It becomes a bit more of contested game, slower scoring. So you don't score, 10 goals per quarter and things like that and get, you know, a massive run of goals um, later in the season. So, yeah, it, it's something that they'll have to sort of uh, keep, in t- keep in mind. And it's something that Chris Fagan's dealt with the last three or four years in terms of, I know two years ago they were really having trouble moving the ball out of the back half. Come the buy rounds, the second half of the season, they were one of the best teams at moving the ball from back half. Uh, I think one another year was their uh, post-clearance contested possession. So they're doing really, really well at the clearances. Not so well at the post, uh, at the sort of general play contested possessions out, and again buy rounds came, and I think the second half of the year they were top three for that stat. So Chris Fagan definitely has the ability to sort of use these buy rounds to regroup and fix what needs to be fixed for the second half of the year. It's probably not defensive personnel. While she, as you said, Harris Andrews, Marcus Adams had a terrific start to the to the season. Starsevic, we know how good a job he can do as a shutdown defender. Daniel Rich just keeps on going. So does that? come down then to their midfielders I mean Lockie Neal's having a fantastic season it's terrific to watch what he's doing he's probably having a better year than his Brownlee year Jared Lyons good player McLuggage good player Berry he can go in there obviously does it come down to their midfield and how I mean two way running well two way running running defensively and helping out their defenders because you say they win the contested possession count Christian but they're still leaking goals pretty heavily well, yeah, sort of, sort of, talk about contested possession counts from previous years, but yeah, they're still sort of up there. But again, in recent weeks, it's almost like they've they've almost broken even in a lot of the ball movement type stuff. So they're they're doing their thing with the ball and letting the opposition do their thing. But as I said, the the back fifty, and again, I'm not going to talk about 
putting it all on that personnel, but that's where the, the big problem is, is the back 50 at the moment. It's not that they're conceding more inside 50s or they're getting much easier to move the ball against um, from one half to the other. It's just once it's been in there the last three weeks, they have leaked the scores. So, yeah, whether that is the, yeah, the, the ability of the midfielders to stop that quality-type entry coming in. It's where their one-wood is. They've got a lot of scoring power, but I just don't think that's what you want coming into the last half of the season. Uh, yeah, it's it's funny. You look at some teams that are having a really good old time, um, having a really good old time going into the bye, and they're about to have the bye, and you think, well, that's going to disrupt their you know momentum, quote unquote. Uh, and then there are other teams like Brisbane, uh, like Melbourne, who probably look at the bye and think, great, a chance to reset uh, and look forward. Um, speaking of the buys, obviously mid year all Australian ours is coming out tomorrow. Depending on when you're listening to this, Jazzy, uh, a few interesting names in there, a few surprises. A couple of surprises, yeah. Not really uh, 22 household names, so certainly one to look out for on every line as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and look, to be honest, it's not often we have a lot of Gold Coast Suns in the mix as well, and there are a couple in the mix uh, coming up soon, but you've got some, you've done some digging on the Suns and you've looked at their run home and it looks pretty favourable, so we might see that they're in contention for the eight come the end of the year. I think they're one of five teams that are in contention. Um Speaking I'm, of plugs, go on. Speaking of plugs, if, if you don't mind. No, so this week, Steve Dove will be on on the finals race. And we're looking at five teams uh, from Collingwood in 8th down to Port Adelaide in 12th as the five contenders for that 8th spot. Um, accepting that probably no one first or 7th will actually drop out from here. So Collingwood spot is the one that's up for grabs. We'll be looking at five teams, the Pies, Dogs, Tigers, Suns and Port looking at the case for and the case against them, why they can and why they can't make the finals this year. But you do touch on, on Gold Coast. Their run home, it's it's pretty handy. I mean, they got seven games coming up against teams either on the same amount of wins as them or lower than them on the ladder. Now, that turns into eight games if you want to include Collingwood, who have one more win. However, that's probably still a, bit, a 50-50 game. It's at Metricon as well. So they would consider themselves... Uh, maybe not the favourites, but a pretty good chance to cause an upset, quote-unquote, if you like. So there's seven or eight winnable games for the Suns. Now, that probably takes them to 13 wins. 13, probably. You probably need 13 to get in this year. It, it seems so. like it's going to be one of those years. You look at the percentage of the top 12, and they're all above 100%, which suggests that there are some really poor teams, obviously, towards the lower reaches of the ladder, Christian, but also the fact that there are 12 teams with a percentage over 100 means that come the end of the season, there's going to be some squabbling for those last few spots. Yeah, we are. Talk about how we're back into the into the ESPN offices. I just left the champion data offices. Was talking about the same thing. How North Melbourne and West Coast are almost so poor they're giving up a lot of percentage <laughs> to the other team. So yeah, to see so many teams over a hundred percent at this stage of the season sort of does show that they're two things. It shows what we were talking about with Melbourne before. Melbourne were on top of the ladder, but they weren't smashing teams. They weren't blowing teams out of the park. Yep. And then you've also got two unfortunately very very poor teams who are giving up very high percentage boosters when you play against North Melbourne and West Coast. But yeah, looking at Gold Coast and, you know, you talk about the run home, but I've even looked at their last five weeks. So looking at round eight onwards, and I, I spoke about them, I think, after round six and said the jury's out. Well, for me, the jury was out because every year they'd done well in the first four to six rounds and then had the drop-off had been quite stark from then on. If you look at just from rounds eight to 12, they're number one on the AFL form ladder with wins against Fremantle and Sydney in that time. So a five-week period is pretty good to be sitting on top of the ladder in that time. Third contested possessions, fourth time in forward half, second for points against, fifth for points for. So doing everything right. And um, as Jared just spoke about, and their run, you know, their run home gives them every chance to sort of come up against the teams that they need to beat to get into the finals. 
I think I'm probably one or two weeks off becoming a Gold Coast believer for the first time ever. Keep us up to date. If uh, if you do jump on the bandwagon, let us know and uh, we can all jump on with you. Uh, speaking of, of Gold Coast, they did let go someone and we spoke about the Dockers earlier. Will Brody uh, obviously been a, a wonderful pickup for that midfield that lost Adam Chera, a bit of a an easy sort of plug-and-play replacement. But he wasn't getting the opportunities that we thought he would be getting at Gold Coast. And now looking at his form at Frio at the moment, you think, why? Or you wonder why? Yeah, to me, it's it's the it's almost the commentary around Will Brody of, uh, you know, hearing things sort of put onto him. Maybe he just needed to get more fit or he needed to do this or he needed to do that. And I sort of stepped back and I thought, well, Will Brody had been killing it, absolutely yeah. smashing it in the VFL slash NEFL, um across the last two years. So he didn't play 2020. Um, because of the lockdown, I think he only had one AFL game. But in the two seasons, either side of 2020, playing in the NEFL and the VFL, um, once it changed names, he had 32 disposals per game, 16 contested possessions, eight clearances, five inside 50s. Um, and even when he came into the AFL, he played 14 games. Eight of the 14, he had at least 20 disposals. So he was doing... Uh, he, he was showing what he could do every single week. You know, every time, as I said, when he went to the lower level, he was just an inside beast. But again... We've spoken about Gold Coast before. We spoke about Matt Rowe's high contested possession rate, and the only guy that's higher than him was Hugh Greenwood, who was also on Gold Coast list. So maybe it was a little bit about what Gold Coast were asking Will Brody to do didn't suit his game. And there's another player I look at very, very similar to that that's come across the last two or three years, very similar to Will Brody, is Ben Keys, in terms of he was at Brisbane, and he was just, again, in the NEFL just smashing it. Their best player week in, week out in the NEFL, but just not getting a look in into the AFL team because he probably played too similar to Dane Zorko. Um, you know, Hugh Cluggage was just coming in, locking Neil to take it a spot. So those sort of smaller type midfielders and sort of looking at Ben Keys and Will Brody. So again, looking at Ben Keys, four years of NEFL of 25 disposals per game, one and a half goals, five tackles, 1.6 score assists. Again, top five or ten for most of those stats as a midfielder or across the whole competition. So trying to find those guys that just continually get that output in tier two or state league level that sort of you can bring into your club if you know that we we know exactly what role we want Will Brody to play, so yep. we're going to get him to play that role. We're not going to bring in Will Brody and ask him to change his game or become more outside. Or become, and we saw with Fremantle how almost patient they were with him. He was playing 70% game time in the first couple of rounds as he got his engine up. But he was still sort of doing the output that Fremantle would have expected. Are there names then that you can look to the state leagues now and, and see a similar pattern where they are playing really well and really consistently and they play a certain role and that could be, at the end of the year, a target for, for a club that, that looks to fill a need? Yeah, I think 2020, again, is that big black hole that makes it a little bit hard. But there's one name that jumps out to me at the moment. It's Reese Matheson. And again, another Queenslander. So, you know, like we talked about Brody and... Uh, ben Keys and they came from Gold Coast Brisbane. Yeah, Reese Matheson's a little bit older than those two. Those two were 24, 23 when they were traded. He's 25 at the moment. But this year, 34 disposals, 17 contested possessions, 17 uncontested, 10 clearances, 9 score involvements. Played 9 games in the NEFL, just not getting a look in at the AFL team. But again, if you're an AFL team that wants an inside tackler, someone that's going to win your clearances, get you some tackles and, you know, really, really compete hard inside, you know what you're going to get with Reese Matheson. Mm. Um, so he's probably someone of, uh, you'd put on your watch list. Paddy Dow starting to do it for Carlton this year, starting to get 29, 30 touches, but has the rest of the midfield sort of gone ahead of Paddy Dow? Or is he going to be a centre-bounce player when he plays for Carlton, or are they going to ask him to come in and, again, get 30 touches in the VFL as a midfielder, but when we bring you in, we'll play you in the half-forward flank. And 
things like that. So he might be another one to watch. And Braden Fiorini again, the Queensland vibe. But yeah, another one that just whenever he goes to the lower levels and even when he plays at the AFL level, you, he we know what Fiorini is. He's a ball magnet. He will get you 20, 25 touches a game. But again, he's just not a, he's just not a regular at Gold Coast for whatever reason. I wonder what that is with the, with the Gold Coast theme here. So Braden Fiorini is one you've just spoken about, but they got rid of Jared Lyons obviously a couple of years ago. Probably was playing in the AFL side uh, for the most part. But it was a surprise when he left. Correct, and it's the same thing with Fiorini, Will Brody before him. What what does Stewie Drew have against these <laughs> prolific midfielders? The- Last year, I would have asked this question and thought there's a breakdown somewhere. But you look at the Suns now, and we talked about their last sort of four or five weeks. Clearly, there's a direction that Dewey wants to take this side, and he seems to be taking it in a direction that's working. And you look at the Suns uh, as a whole as well, and, and they are without some key pieces. I mean, we look Lockie Wellers now. There's a big challenge ahead because he's out for a year with an ACL. Uh, ben King went down in the preseason, so they've had to sort of have this sort of patchwork forward line. Marby or Chole, Levi Casbolt at times. Um, you know, Sam Day's come back in. There's been some it's not been an ideal season and, and Gold Coast are persevering. So I'm not so concerned when you look at someone like Fiorini when he's not getting a game. He may be of more used to someone else and that's the same for someone like Matheson. It's the same for someone like Dow. Um, these teams just have a glut of the same kind of player and, and, and maybe there is a bargain out there for a team that needs those kind of players on their list. The National Curriculum Football Podcast is a new home at ESPN to be found wherever you get your pods from. To mark the occasion, they asked us to make an ad around 15 seconds, but we're going to go an hour and a half. <laughs> Laugh. Staff. Half. <laughs> See you soon, guys. Oh, aren't I? You're a sod. Time for our favourite segment. Is the hype justified or is it hyperbole? I'll uh, put a few statements to you guys. You tell me whether the hype is justified or I'm speaking in hyperbole. Tex, Jared. Texas. Yes, not Texas. <laughs> Tex Walker. Uh, Taylor Walker. Does he deserve another contract with Adelaide? So with Adelaide is the interesting part there. I think he deserves another contract. With Adelaide, yes. The two years that he is apparently seeking, maybe not. So I think he's probably worth more to a club, perhaps in their premiership window or uh, who needs a key forward, maybe a GWS, a Gold Coast, uh, Fremantle, if Rory Lobb decides to leave at the end of the year, then Tex Walker could probably actually be a, a pretty good target. Uh, 32 years old, still playing really good footy. He's still you know, winning games off his own boot. He's been doing it for a few years now. So the age hasn't crept up on him at all. He's still playing like he's 26, 27. So I think he's still got a lot to give to an AFL side, whether that's with Adelaide, who may want to get more games into Darcy Fogarty. Is it a statement to get rid of Tex Walker and say, hey, Darcy, you're our man for mm. the future? Riley Philthorpe's there as well. Philthorpe's there as well. Um, Frampton, Lockie Gallant's an up-and-comer. So they've got a... Himmelberg. There's a glut. There, there is. So <laughs> do they want to go in that direction and give games to these uh, younger guys? Given gonna... Tex isn't going to be part of that next assault on a flag, you would think. Correct. But then there's also that show of faith as well. Um, you know, sticking by him through, you know, what he went through in the offseason, that was his own fault. But does he accept a one-year offer from Adelaide? I don't think he actually will. So I think they'll make the offer. I wouldn't make more than one year, though. The Giants intrigues me. I wouldn't... I think he at the Giants would be very interesting given what they've lost in the last couple of years in terms of key forwards. Pairing with Riccardi and... Uh, Himmelberg as well, yep. Mm. One, about, one Himmelberg to the other. Sort of the, the number you, you've used for Nat Five before is either the six goals, 21. Tex Walker is the type of guy that can get you 10 goals from 10 kicks because he kicks them from anywhere. That's just so beautiful. So like, the, the action that he has. So again, he's just, he's almost still a safe bet as a key forward 
at this stage of his career just because he doesn't need to get 20 touches to have an impact. He can have six kicks and kick your four goals and he's done his job. Mm. Well, she a, a big game this week, Essendon versus Carlton, the the old, uh, the old rivalry. Did yes. the Bombers make a mistake by electing to play Carlton <laughs> for their 150th anniversary? Carlton has a habit of uh, of bursting the bubbles of these sort of celebrations. Most recently, Collingwood had their 125th, 150th. They had they a big milestone been, yeah. recently. Got beaten by Carlton. That was yep. when Daisy Thomas did the old uh, the fake off, and I think it was Tyson Goldsack might have gone flying into the <laughs> into the sidelines. Uh, are you a Carlton it, fan, are you? They, yeah, they also did it to Richmond uh, 10, 12 years ago. Richmond had a big celebration. They got absolutely pantsed. Mm. I get the feeling that, that Carlton, after their loss to Collingwood and a week off, are going to be ready to go. And uh, I think this could get really ugly. And sure, having the old rivalry, uh, Carlton uh, playing Essendon for this sort of 150th celebration seems good on paper, but I just, you know, if you want to have a celebration celebration, maybe you pick North Melbourne next time. <laughs> Uh, Christian, Thursday night's crowd. This is going to be between Richmond and Port Adelaide at the MCG. It's going to disappoint, and we're going to keep talking about crowds. I think so. It's very, very cold in Melbourne at the moment, so I'm not going to the footy on Thursday night if you ask me. But, yeah, I, I mean, I had an experience with this. I've got two kids that are yet to be, yet to go to the football. Had the weekend off back in round five. Um, was eager to take them to Carlton, Port Adelaide at the MCG. Prices put me off straight away. Just just for myself to go was hard enough. Um, plus to add the two kids' tickets to sit on level three, as I said, it would have been their first game of football. They're not they're not there to see the loose man or who's breaking out of the stoppages or who's rolling up to be you know the seventh In man. In your household, I'd so, almost expected. Well, not 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 yet. <laughs> but um, so again, I just I didn't go because I thought, well, yeah, level three experience and the the price that it was, we ended up going to the movies and probably spending the same thing. But um. Again, yeah, I do think that that the AFL needs to sit down at the end of the year and figure out something with crowds because it is, it's a little bit of COVID. Um, it's easier to sit at home and watch football on TV. I, you know, I hear a lot of mates say that. The weather's, you know, again, like it's always been cold in Melbourne. I feel like from the last two years of being stuck at home, people yeah. are more happy to stay home when it's cold. Uh, so yeah, Thursday night, Richmond Port, as you know, as Jared's article is going to show tomorrow, both these teams are a chance to make finals. So it's a very, very big game for both of them. But wouldn't be surprised to see under 30,000. I think they might just limp over 30,000 would be a guess of mine. But one thing I can guarantee you, and again, goes back to one of Jared's points early in the podcast, it's not the umpire's fault the crowd staying away. That's one of the <laughs> things that's thrown up is people aren't going to the football because of the bad umpiring. <laughs> I don't think so. What, what, do we, what do we think they need this week before it's a talking point again? Uh, see, this is interesting. And we, maybe we can talk a little bit about the crowds from the weekend just gone as well. But look, as far as I'm concerned, Richmond fans, uh, they always talk about how they've got 100,000 members, you know, yellow and black, through thick and thin, all this sort of stuff. Uh, if this game was at Marvel, I would expect that there would be no more than 18,000 there. If they get less than 30, I think that, that would be disappointing. There are obviously reasons. The weather is crap this week. It's going to be raining. Uh, it's going it's to be a cold. huge game, though, in the it context is a massive of the season. Game. So... It is a really, really big game. And, and the AFL would hope that that's a 45,000-strong crowd, you would think. Yeah. Uh, but it's just not going to be. I get that feeling. Yeah, Richmond fans, were watching you. We certainly are. Uh, before we wrap things up, just, just on that, that crowds from the weekend, these fans... Back at the snow for the first time in two years. Is that what's happening? 32,000 against the Swans. Now, the Swans have a very, very strong contingent here in Melbourne. They were very vocal on Saturday night. Uh, is 32 good enough? And then the week before against Frio, top four clash, 29,000. I'm just... Is it disappointing or is that pretty par for the course for the Ds? I mean, 
Historically, massively disappointing. Really? Massively disappointing. For the reigning premiers to be getting 30,000 people to the MCG Saturday afternoon, and we already spoke about this, so the weather may have an impact, but you've got to back your team in. When it's, when it's sunny, when bad? it's raining, when it's hailing, surely it doesn't matter. Okay. You got You got to. Maybe the D's just don't have as many supporters as we think. And if it was a Carlton and Collingwood who did play on a Sunday afternoon mm. uh, last week, they still got. I can't 80, remember what the attendance 80, was. 80,000. Eighty thousand. So, look, there's no excuses. Maybe they just don't have as many supporters. But you'd like to think that there were more Melbourne fans at that game. I just think, don't think that's the case when there are so many South Melbourne supporters. Yes. Um, Sydney converts now based in Melbourne. Yes. There may have only been not even more than 20,000 Demon supporters. So, uh, again, it's another it's another watch uh, for the rest of the year, but it is disappointing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think 30,000 is a pretty good crowd. That same fixture seven years ago when both teams were no good would have had about 18,000 there at the G. Footy tips. Get your tips in, guys. It's a Thursday game this week, so make sure that uh, you're on top of that because if you miss out and you end up... Uh, what do you, I think you get the away team if you don't tip, so Port Adelaide you at the do. G against the Tigers. Could be half a chance. Who's your pick? I haven't tipped yet. So <laughs> that's a reminder for myself more than anything. Uh, team, good to have you back in the office. Jared, thanks for joining us. As always, no, it's good pleasure, mate. Uh, and Christian, good to see you. Yep. To everyone at home, we'll speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.